Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with Richard Kim, principal at Galaxy Interactive. Richard is an incredibly thoughtful investor, which comes through not only in his explanation of Galaxy Interactive's investment theses, but also through his vision for the future of the crypto economy. In the first part of the conversation, we do a deep dive on the future of gaming and metaverses, including virtual real estate speculation. Find out which company is raising a fund to invest in virtual real estate. In the second half of the conversation, we dive into the world of social tokens and explore the promises and perils of this new crypto sector and discuss topics like the meaning of status as an asset, the embedded engagement value of online communities, and Richard's social club experiment called RNG. I learned a ton during this conversation and hope you have a few new takeaways as well. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Richard, thanks so much for joining us on Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So towards the end of last year, Richard, you moved to Spain and in a poignant uh, reflection about your decision to move out of Manhattan and uproot your family to Spain, you talked about the idea of living a barbell life. Can you share with our audience what that means? Yeah, I mean, actually, that term comes from uh, Taleb's Anti-Fragile, where he talks about how oftentimes we live life in the seeming safe middle route. But actually, the middle is often the most dangerous place to be. He was specifically talking about notions of risk management and how by being in the middle, you expose yourself to significant downsides. I thought the idea had interesting applications outside of purely risk management towards how we live life more generally. Being in Manhattan during COVID, it's easy to just get stuck to a routine and kind of just live every day in a, in a pretty unquestioning way. I had felt that, you know, it was time to really kind of uproot my life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, COVID makes you question a lot of things. And, and one of the things I had been questioning was, what, why am I spending $8,000 a month on a, you know, in a two bedroom in, in a crowded city when I could be paying <laughs> a third of the amount for three times the space in three times of as beautiful a location. And so basically uprooted and, and moved to Spain and, you know, none of us spoke any Spanish. And uh, I think that was very much the point is to put yourself in situations where you're constantly learning and out of that disorder, somehow order naturally arises and, and structure arises in interesting ways. And, and that's right around when I started thinking about some of the, the crazy things that were happening in crypto space, you know, near Q2, Q3, you know, I, that's when I was first introduced to this idea of social tokens. And I've always been intrigued by the idea that you can create a virtual currency and capture a lot of engagement value um, through the, the, the bootstrapped efforts of the community. And thereby, you know, this idea of building something from nothing. My background is in markets and trading. And I had, I had grown used to this idea that unless you could kind of value something in some objective way, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these ideas seem quite fluffy and loosey goosey. And so, you know, the, the physical move was one way of kind of questioning everything I, I thought I had n- known over 10 plus years in, in markets. Um, and it's been, it's been a really interesting journey 
since then. So yeah, I, I'd encourage everyone to put themselves out of, out of their kind of comfort zone. Um, and it puts you into a naturally more self-questioning and self-reflective state of mind. Yeah. Thanks for taking us through that thought process of yours. I know a big decision or a big part of your decision definitely involved making a trade-off, right? And you talk about this trade-off around ownership of letting go of the material things that you could not take with you. But the result of that was perhaps you got to experience more freedom, right? More optionality. And this type of mentality shift is, of course, driven by a number of factors, both external and, and internal. But why crypto is so fascinating to me is because it's about changing behaviors, right? And, and typically that means, you know, changing behaviors about our worldview on money, how we make it, you know, invest it and spend it. But I think some of this behavior kind of seeps into the mental models we create for our lives as well. So that was perhaps something that you're getting at there. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, you know, the idea of who your, who your friends are, even, you know, like your, your conception of self in the physical realm, like I've found that to be quite challenged, you know, in this kind of post-COVID world where, where I've forged a lot of really meaningful relationships in purely digital space with people I've never actually physically met. So it, it's very much, I think, the new normal and puts you into a state of mind where you really think anything is possible. And with the speed at which I see development happening across the Web3 um, ecosystem and its kind of intersection with the creative fields. At the top of our conversation, you talked a bit about social tokens, and I definitely want to frame our conversation today around this niche that I know a lot of people in crypto are interested in, just as people are starting to get interested in the fringe industry of NFTs. But I think a nice way to ease into that conversation is to talk a little bit about Galaxy Interactive and you know how your work there has given you a gateway to look at social tokens as a possible investment. And Galaxy Interactive has a large footprint investing in what I call the fun sphere, such as gaming and creative platforms. And I love the way that you guys frame your investment around intersection between interactive content, social, and technology. These are pretty broad themes, but looking at your investment theses, it shows that you guys focus on some very interesting niches. Can you talk about some of the differences between the creator economy vertical, uh, synthetic media, and also viewer participation verticals, just labels that our audience probably has not heard of before. Yeah, at a high level, the thesis of the fund is, or the, the, the mission of the fund really is to, is to back you know, those teams that are creating fun, meaning and possibility in the virtual world to bring us one step closer in the real world. And if you really think about what that touches, it, it ranges from game studios to those building interactive social experiences to those who are building technology and infrastructure that make you know digital connections much more interesting and create new modes of communication and connection in ways that weren't possible before right for us we view games more broadly as this kind of universal language that connect us through a, a real meritocracy of shared goals and experiences and give our lives broader structure and purpose and 
you know, inherent in that belief is this idea that our, our digital identities have become just as important as our physical ones. And, you know, the opportunity to us is, is the fact that today games, especially from kind of traditional investors, are still largely viewed as distractions and, you know, the virtual is not really considered real. For us, it's what's interesting is there's a whole host of opportunities standing right there in front of us. And the trick here is not to have predictive capabilities of some science fiction future, but actually to see uh, the new realities that have already emerged right before us, you know, leveraging some of the new primitives like Web3 and its intersection with games, the creator economy, and virtual worlds more broadly to, to just see, you know, everything that's happening, right? And, and, and take off our blinders. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a lot of specific theses uh, that, that we've invested over $200 million into from our first fund. I, I think a lot of these specific theses are going to evolve over time as well, right? So we really like the opportunities um, that are, I guess the best way to describe them is, is hidden in plain sight. And, you know, I, I think what makes the Galaxy Interactive team unique is, you know, my background is in traditional markets, as I've, as I've mentioned, um, and, and law. Um, and, you know, my partner, Sam, he has a, you know, 15 plus year background in kind of old world media, like film financing. Um, and, you know, he's really well connected to traditional folks in Hollywood. And, um, you know, on our, on our investment team, we have, uh, you know, Michael Fan, who's a you know cloud, cloud gaming expert and has had a ton of experience in in, um, in things like streaming and um, you know really the the kind of deep tech infrastructure you need to understand where where gaming is heading and then you know just a whole host of other backgrounds on our team. So you know I think what makes us unique is is that we don't come to investment opportunities with like a, a fixed state of mind of here's what's worked in the last 20 years. Therefore you know, I'm going to look at what you're doing and check off XYZ boxes and uh, either you fit or you don't fit. Um, really, it's about just understanding how a lot of these colliding worlds of gaming, entertainment, social and, and finance and tech are all coming together in ways that, that create really exponential opportunities as opposed to, to linear improvements. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, of the seven investment theses right now, which one came the latest. So which one's the newest of the pack? I, I would put Web3 up there, which isn't, I'm not even sure it's, it's, I mean, we have this broad <laughs> kind of bucket of kind of, you know, interactive technologies of which, you know, there's a whole host of them ranging from cloud gaming to VRAR to, to blockchain. But blockchain is interesting for us because it, it was in some sense, the starting point for our first fund um, was this idea that if you believe our thesis that our digital identities have become just as real as our physical ones, then all of the infrastructure that exists in the physical world, ranging from markets to just places to congregate, congregate and you know, other parts of the stack, they, they all need to be replicated in digital form. And, and one of the core primitives there is a way to bring this notion of scarcity and true ownership and traceable provenance to you know, what previously were in digital markets, markets of like unlimited supply, right? Like the equivalent of right-click save as uh, image in the case of NFTs, right? And, and that's what a lot of people still haven't wrapped their heads around is that they're like, how is that valuable if, you know, I can just infinitely propagate, you know, an image by, by downloading it and copying it. But, you know, the moment you bring this notion of ownership and scarcity to what previously were goods of limitless supply 
uh, in terms of internet culture um, and consumption, you know, there's a whole host of industries that get unlocked as a result of that. Going back to your original question, you know, one of the, some of the first investments we made out of the fund were some blockchain game studios uh, like Immutable, who's the maker of Gods Unchained and is soon going to release Immutable X, which is a layer two scaling uh, solution for Ethereum. Um, you know, we invest in Mythical Games, who's the creator of Blancos, which we think is going to be one of the first kind of mainstream blockchain games that hits kind of, you know, millions of users. I'd say throughout 2019, it's not that we stopped caring about blockchain, it's that the market was pretty small. And so there was a reasonable concern about whether the TAM of blockchain gaming would ever justify venture scale opportunities, especially because most of the traditional game developers that, that we encountered, either they were negative on blockchain or they were constructive about it, but felt that the infrastructure surrounding it and, and the kind of user experience around blockchain just didn't support full shift into blockchain gaming yet. Obviously, in the last six months, a lot of that has changed. And now I'd say, you know, we've, we've kind of returned to our roots in a sense and, and become much more constructive blockchain gaming, as well as just the broader intersection of Web3 and the creator economy, just because, the, you know, the TAM of these markets have independent of any assumption around mainstream gamers shifting over to blockchain. The TAM of these markets has become sufficiently interesting and, and kind of venture scale in their own right. These themes are all converging so quickly, I find. Now with this whole NFT hype, adding a layer on top, do you find these two narratives now inseparable? Like a blockchain game necessarily has to incorporate an element of NFT? The way I explain this is that there are gradations of development into, into blockchain, right? So on one end of the spectrum, you have traditional games where virtual goods are arguably just rented by players or not truly owned by players. Like if you ask any mainstream gamer, they won't describe it this way. Like if you say, oh, you don't actually own your Fortnite skin, they'll say, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and so like most of the blockchain gaming debates actually get stuck on this first point of you don't owe you, own your things. And then it's a, yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. <laughs> and uh, it kind of ends there. Um, for those who do want to kind of shift towards, you know, the potential of blockchain gaming, I think the first step is open economies, which doesn't actually require anything to be on the blockchain, but is, is more of a nod to if you give your players the ability to freely trade virtual goods, the next logical step of that is the ability to realize that value in some more concrete form, as opposed to you know, just close the loop virtual currencies that you can't cash out, right? And here's where blockchain becomes pretty interesting, both at the virtual currency layer, as well as the virtual goods layer. The kind of baby steps, as I'd call it, of integrating blockchain into a game is the idea of making some of your cosmetics, putting those virtual goods, instantiating them as NFTs, right? And then, and then linking those NFTs to kind of the in-game experience so that you can see your character in game running around with the skin and and you own that skin and you can trade it just like any other NFT. That's reasonably interesting and it's obviously a step towards unlocking this idea that you really own your goods in game. But it's it's a baby step, right? Like I, I would say that the much bigger idea beyond just open economies as well as skins as NFTs is the idea of community-owned games more broadly. And by that, I mean giving your players uh, the ability, especially early adopters, 
the ability to financially um, benefit from the continued expansion and mindshare of the game as it grows in, in terms of player base and, and kind of GMV uh, within, within that game. This is where some of the emerging virtual worlds like the Sandbox is a good example of this. You know, the Sandbox, think of it as, you know, Minecraft on the blockchain. And at the center of their ecosystem, they have the Sand token, uh, which can be used to do things like purchase packs of, of virtual goods in the marketplace, as well as used to buy land. In, in the sandbox ecosystem, so virtual real estate. You know, this is a really interesting idea, right? Because if, if you know that there's a, some fixed supply of virtual currency and, you know, as the player base scales, demand for that virtual currency is gonna grow, it would be as if you had the ability to buy V-Bucks in 2017 and imagine that the supply of V-Bucks was fixed, um, which it's not today uh, for Fortnite, but just imagine it were fixed. And, and V-Bucks were a, were a blockchain-based virtual currency, you know, you could essentially take a long position on the growth of Fortnite if you went long V-Bucks, right? And, and, just, and just use them. And you can structure this in a way that doesn't necessarily interfere with the player experience. If all you want to do is buy a skin for 20 bucks, you could hold the dollar price of skins constant um, such that you need fewer and fewer V-Bucks over time to, to, to redeem for, for one skin. Um, so, you know, there, there's kind of interesting um, mechanisms you can, you can build in here uh, that increasingly turn your game into um, what looks like a community-owned game. You know, we can talk about DAO mechanics as well that I'm starting to see in a couple of titles. Um, you know, and then the, the, I'd say the most cutting-edge games are, are the games like Illuvium and others that um, have gone pretty deep into the integration with DeFi to really go much further along this notion of a community-owned game. And, and to me, one of, the, one of the things I look for here is, you know, what is the capital structure of the company here, right? Because, you know, back in 2017, something I saw a lot was, oh, tokens are great because they're non-dilutive equity. So we'll just sell these things, but, you know, really retain all the core value for the equity holders. And what I'm seeing now is, is something of an interesting shift where the equity is, is increasingly uninteresting and the tokens are increasingly interesting because mm -hmm. the economic designer is structured so that all the value of the ecosystem and the GMV and, and any kind of transaction taxes off of that GMV accrue to token holders. So I think we would see a lot more of this if it weren't for kind of regulatory issues, both on the securities law side um, with having virtual currencies like this, as well as some of the KYC AML issues you run into with FinCEN and their global equivalents from being the issuer of a virtual currency and, and needing to monitor transaction flows around that. But it doesn't detract from the attractiveness of the core idea, which is to the extent you get your player base involved early on as uh, effectively investors in the ecosystem. They become something like viral agents where they're highly incentivized to do things like, you know, retweet your, uh, your announcements so that they can get a, a chance for an NFT drop. In addition to just the core financial structure inside, you know, from a marketing standpoint, particularly in a post IDSA world, um, where it's increasingly difficult to do kind of paid advertisement targeting for high spending players. You know, I think mechanisms to promote more organic rurality using the prospect of 
you know, key drops and, and kind of virtual currency drops and this sort of thing are going to be increasingly critical. There's so much to unpack there. Just on your last point, yeah, I think it's not that it's the easiest way, but it's definitely the most organic way to build up a marketing army that is loyal, right? They're not just there for one airdrop of something or to participate in some sort of prize unlock. You know, it really hooks you in if you feel like you do have skin in the game from the very beginning in the creation of this community-owned game that you've been talking about. And even prior to that, you were talking about a game called Sandbox. And one thing I've heard about that game is that the land is very valuable. Can you talk a bit about virtual real estate speculation that's going on in a lot of these virtual worlds? Yeah, um, it's a fascinating topic. And one, again, that I, I'm, I'm personally somewhat admittedly late to. I remember sitting uh, in a 2018 NFT New York City conference where I first heard about Decentraland. And I thought it was such a cool idea. And, you know, and it, people kept talking about crypto punks back then as well. It was one of those things that you, you have on your, your checklist of, oh, I've got to pick some of these things up after the conference. And then you just get busy and forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, like the OGs have been talking about this for, for two years, but I'd say in the last three months, speculation in a lot of these virtual worlds, particularly for, for land, has really escalated, right? So, so today there's a couple of kind of big virtual worlds in the form of Decentraland, Sandbox, Crypto Voxels, a couple in VR like Somnium Space and others. But Sandbox in particular is interesting to us because the, the idea of Minecraft on the blockchain just makes so much conceptual sense to me. Now, I do think the user base for the Sandbox is going to be quite different personally speaking, from Minecraft today. Uh, it'll be interesting to see who really builds in that world because you know, to the extent that you can target the same kind of core audience as Minecraft, those early teens, and, and maybe slightly a bit younger, and introduce them to kind of these true ownership primitives from an early age. Like there's no reason to think a 13-year-old couldn't be as good a, a kind of venture scout as someone in their 20s going forward. It's just a pretty, pretty crazy thought. I still think today we're a bit far away from that. And the, the initial user set is actually more likely to be crypto users for things like the sandbox. But I'm really fascinated by the idea of buy a large parcel of land, build it just like you would, you know, any other real estate plot into a pool and a neighborhood with a, a kind of healthy ecosystem and, and then distribute some parcels um, by selling portions of that parcel back to the community and, and kind of continuing the cycle of buy, build, and distribute, right? So, you know, in the sandbox in particular, we've taken a pretty, a pretty large parcel recently. And our idea is to, to actually distribute one parcel to each of our portfolio companies. And, and, you know, we have over 55 companies in our portfolio now and, you know, just see what they do with it. And I think that type of thing is really healthy for the ecosystem. And, and will encourage kind of further building around the cool sections of the metaverse that, that hopefully we get to build. So, you know, I've had to reach out to people like, I, I respect Maddie a lot, who's one of the early kind of Decentraland buyers. I talked to him the other day and just getting his perspective on things like, you know, who are, who are the cool digital architects for, uh, for mm. something like this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, all, all of those things that are, are, are all quite new. You know, we're, we've also recently partnered with Republic you know, I sit on the board of Republic, but they're one of the largest crowdfunding platforms in the United States. And the only platform today that can do security token issuances to retail non-accredited investors. 
And, and one of the things they're working on uh, through Republic Realm is raising a fund for, for purely virtual real estate. Um, and, and we're kind of co-sponsoring wow. um, this with them on the GP side. And I'm pretty excited about what Benin, Jesse, and the rest of, of the team over there uh, are going to do with this. And, and I'm most excited about what we can do together, not even in the context of the existing virtual world, but actually the AAA games in our portfolio, like what people like Leslie Benzies, who created the Grand Theft Auto franchise, are going to do uh, in terms of their thinking on how, how to combine the best of the UGC worlds they're creating uh, with this idea of uh, real estate ownership in, in purely virtual worlds. That's so cool and, and very, very fascinating. So now I want to pivot our conversation to a space that I know you're very passionate about. You've mentioned this kind of early on in our conversation, and that is about social tokens. And one concept that is super important in the social token space is the idea of status, right? And there's a famous Silicon Valley product manager, Eugene Wei, who wrote an article about status games in which he talks about status as an asset and how social networks have really turned status seeking from a local game to a more global game. And that's what we're seeing kind of with social tokens in, in crypto, I think. And in this article, he talks about, I guess, two broad questions, which are number one, are people status seeking monkeys? And number two, do people seek out the most efficient path to maximizing social capital? So let's break these down. Do you think people are status seeking monkeys? Yeah, I mean, I, that was one of my favorite articles as well when Eugene wrote it. Um, I think it's kind of obvious, right? You, you you can look at any of the social networks that he analyzes in that article or, or more relevant to me, like look at the $175 billion a year game, gaming industry and ask yourself how much of that spend is driven by essentially status seeking. So not things like paying $59.99 to, to play a game which is more just access, but things like in-game cosmetics in purely free-to-play titles that have no value other than their status value, right? Mm -hmm. It's really surprising to see how much of that spend falls into the latter bucket. In some sense, social tokens are the most obvious extension of what has already been an over-decade-long trend now towards status connoting virtual goods. And um, what social tokens, I think, the real promise of these things is like your starting point for analyzing them should not be should not be things like cryptocurrencies, which as the center of their belief, things like, you know, the belief in the transactional value of the currencies. I mean, that's, that's relevant for anything, but it's actually more like the embedded engagement value, um, which is something that I, I think is less relevant to something like Bitcoin, uh, but the embedded engagement value of the community surrounding social tokens. So if you started your premise, the idea that a social token is just a virtual currency and think, think a virtual currency in game to be more specific. And the twist is the social token is fungible and exchangeable and is not locked in the game environment, right? That you would see for something like gold in World of Warcraft or any of the other like, you know, multi-billion dollar grossing MMOs. It's really the same thing uh, at that point, right? And, and the interesting twist of fungibility introduces a lot of 
existential complexity uh, in terms of extrinsic factors dominating what were otherwise closely controlled loops of acquisition and, and syncs and faucets and this sort of thing that game designers are used to, but also that much more powerful because uh, they, they're not controlled solely by the game designer as the central bank and the sole market maker, et cetera. And that's what I think is the kind of double-edged promise and peril of social tokens. Yeah. Do you think when it comes to social tokens, having social capital is an indicator of having financial capital? Like as you think about this ecosystem growing, that this trend would play out? So like, I guess the most extreme example of this right now is, is BitClout, which I, I'm personally not a fan of at all, just because I, I struggle to really see the utility as well as um, the kind of ability to cash out on, uh, on status. It seems like a highly managed, controlled thing that <laughs> feels, feels a bit too Ponzi-like for, for, for my <laughs> taste, personally. The main issue I have with it is the inability to like cash out in the way you would what I consider a real social token like Whale or, or FWB or any of these pretty engaged communities where there are ERC-20 tokens. So you can trade them on Uniswap like any other uh, DeFi token or, or whatever, right? I mean, so it's not even really like blockchain if you ask me. But, you know, the other issue I have with it is it's pure reputational clout and literally nothing more. So just pure expectation and promise. Whereas I think the, the most interesting social token communities have embedded not just a speculative premium for how the community will grow, but some real transactional utility embedded in them, like the ability to use the token to, for example, buy art from the community or the creator, or use the token to redeem for merchandise, uh, or use the token to fulfill some kind of tipping function within the community that's socially accepted or use it for poker terms or use it for anything other than purely reputational class. Yeah, let's talk about the social token that you're involved with called RNG. Talk to me about, you know, how you grew this community on Discord, how it's like building, as you say, a virtual Soho house and how you would structure the you know consumer economics of being a part of this type of virtual club. We'd love to learn more about that. Yeah, so um, started this thing as a social experiment in October, and the first thing I'll say is it's not one of these like massive success cases where I'm telling you how we scaled to a million users and there's <laughs> like a million dollars of GMV going through it. <laughs> it's it's still in the extremely formative stages in my opinion. Um, but you know through it, my favorite part's been just some of the the deep and meaningful friendships that have been like forged through the community in purely digital form that I meeting people I've never met physically and probably will never meet physically. So <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. But you know, the, the whole idea behind RNG was to create this really social club for the gaming and interactive community across both founders, investors, and really just like crypto enthusiasts generally where we created this ERC-20 token called RNG that serves as this unifying force for you know, really disparate interest groups. Um, uh, and the idea was to use the token as that unifying layer of access, coordination, and, and incentives, um, where imagine you're building Soho House, a digital Soho House, where early members get in for free, uh, but not only get in for free, but they own almost all the upside of the endeavor in the form of kind of token distributions over time. 
what it's evolved into over time is really just this virtual space for, for knowledge share, like interesting articles, books, podcasts. You know, we have some kind of game tournaments and Magic Gathering and poker and a few other things. Um, you know, we have kind of community-led events. Like today, actually, the 8th of April, we have a DJ, Harrison First, who has his own community, and he's playing um, at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and those are always like super fun, right? Because you have the live Discord chat and then the Discord audio and people in the middle of their workday can listen to you know, a live stream DJ set. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty fun to do stuff like that. And, you know, we have bi-weekly improv sessions because I've always wanted to learn improv and one of our community members teaches improv. And so it's, it's fun to be in what well, we use high fidelity for this virtual avatar space where it's really highly simplistic in 2D, but incorporating elements of spatial audio where you can move around a little dot and face in certain directions. And what you hear depends on like where you're situated. And so it almost feels like you're there in, in physical form, but have none of the awkwardness of like sucking at improv in front of a bunch of <laughs> right so you, you, like the fact that you're just a dot on the screen is, is something of a safety blanket so it's, it's it's really cool and you know one of the things I've explored in writing about it so like when I first launched I, I wrote this thing called from nothing to something with RNG the first few weeks were just mental like there were just like any any DeFi drop for example <laughs> right you have hundreds of people like scrambling for this token of like who knows what value just because <laughs> how do <laughs> they I get it? You're gonna earn it <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, you know, over time, you know, a month into the experiment, I talked to Raf Foster, who's one of our portfolio company CEOs, the creative director behind Star Wars Galaxy, Ultima Online, and pretty kind of legendary guy. He has an awesome blog, RafFoster.com. And you know, I was like, hey, isn't like this token thing, one of the coolest things you've seen, like in everything you thought you knew over the last 25 years of MMO design, it's like, I've shortcut it. Like I've figured it out. <laughs> and uh, and he, he wrote something of a, a long retort that I found deeply impactful where he was basically saying, you know, this isn't really an organic community, right? Because organic communities don't have external incentives to shape behavior. And, you know, one of the things he mentioned was that currencies are used as a coordination layer for people who don't trust each other, right? Whereas really strong communities, in some sense, they shouldn't even need currency because they all trust each other, right? Um, and so there is this tension between, you know, having a purely financially motivated kind of token-driven disparate group of people who care about nothing other than getting more tokens versus building up a, a community of, of shared values and interests and building something more lasting. You know, the other, the other kind of thought that ran into my head throughout that, those first couple of weeks was, you know, it's easy to build a short-term game of, of like super high engagement and, um, and you think you have something really lasting, but if you fast forward 20 years and you can't figure out the right uh, of the community to really exist in years from now, I, I think you're gonna have a recursive problem at the end of the day where someone's gonna look forward game theory wise and see the end game and wanna exit <laughs> before everyone else exits, right? I think this mm -hmm. is the structural problem most communities have, especially the ones that are single creator communities. Um, so I think the community has to stand for something other than one artist or um, kind of one creator. It has to stand for something abstract 
um, that kind of transcends one individual, but is also not so abstract as to have no meaning, right? But to actually to actually mean something from a values and interest standpoint to, to a lot of people. So, you know, I explored a lot of this stuff in 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 kind of a series of mini essays that I wrote in January um, called "The Stream of Social Token Consciousness." And you know, there's no right answer to a lot of this stuff, but I just want to make sure that you know as the hype around social tokens starts to increase. You know, you see a lot of tweets these days saying social tokens are the next evolution of NFTs. And, you know, I, I tend to agree with that just because, like I said, virtual currencies have a long history of capturing a lot of the embedded engagement value um, of communities. And it's a great way for early adopters to get upside in the growth of a community. But the point is you have to build a long-term game and there's this constant tension between intrinsic and extrinsic motivations um, that needs to be carefully managed over time. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up your you know, stream of social token consciousness blog posts. I think there are like 25 of them, very prolific writing. And you know, one quote that I really, really loved, and I, I pulled this while I was reading through it, was social tokens have this interesting tension that most other crypto or financial assets do not have between the need to quote unquote infect others with its narrative to increase token demand versus the quote unquote affinity loss suffered when communities grow too big, too fast. Can you say more about this? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a constant tension I've dealt with in RNG actually. Um, you know, I, I, we, uh, we laid out the, call it geography of the discord to accommodate as many different values and interests as possible. And what that resulted in was just like this, this feeling that it, there were just too many channels and there wasn't a town square where people could congregate and there was a critical mass of activity, right? And, and so like, if you, if you take a step back, you know, this, this tension between big versus small is something that has been actually explored at length by a number of anthropologists in particular. Like one of my favorite books that I've only read like a sixth of, but I wish every day I had more time to read more of <laughs> is, um, uh, it's called A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander and a couple of others. Basically they, they explore in that book, um, it was written in the seventies actually. It's a book on like architecture, urban design and, and really community livability. And it's amazing how much of these physical design patterns actually apply to virtual space. Um, and one of those things is like when a community expands beyond a certain point, um, no one knows each other anymore, right? And there, there are gradations of this theme in kind of Dunbar's number and kind of other, other anthropological studies. Like in Discord, this number I hear a lot is um, 3000 is, is the number above which like a discord doesn't feel like home anymore because you don't know anyone. <laughs> it just feels like telegram, frankly, which I hate because it's so overwhelming versus you could build a really tightly knit community of say like 50 people, but then your token is probably not going to go up in value very much because it's the same 50 people. Right. And a lot of what drives token prices is infecting new people from a mindshare standpoint with, with the coolness of the community. Right. And so, I'd say um, one of my favorite token communities right now is Friends with Benefits, created by the, the creator of Lil Michaela Trevor, and has like one of the best, I'd say, kind of Web3 native teams behind it, Cooper Turley and a couple of others. They're dealing with this right now of like this, this tension between 
wanting to increase the price of FWB versus wanting to bring some degree of exclusivity to the community and, and having it be this kind of curated invite only group, right? And they've got a real, um, real, real nice vibe in terms of artists um, and creatives there that the moment you unlock the, the gates uh, and, and allow like, for example, what you see in any new DeFi airdrop project in these like 3000 people who care about nothing other than <laughs> wanting to get more tokens, like it would completely ruin, ruin the vibe, right? You know, it's, it's attention. And like, basically the, the right, the right way to deal with that is again, to uh, view this as a long-term game with, with a constant dynamism to token allocation where the most engaged members of the community um, get to control more and more of the token supply over time. And those who are more speculative or short-term in nature hopefully get cycled out. That's so fascinating. I mean, with social tokens and you know, NFTs and DAOs, which you mentioned earlier, uh, there is so much space within this creator economy to explore that converges, again, a lot of these seemingly unrelated themes like urban planning <laughs> um, and spatial design and, and architecture it all kind of comes together in this sort of interdisciplinary thought experiment. But I guess on DAOs, that, that's the only one that we haven't talked about so far. Did you want to just give us your two cents on what's happening in that space that's you know fascinating to you and what are some trends that we should be thinking about? I need to do much more experimentation with DAOs myself. Packy McCormick wrote a pretty good article called The DAO of DAOs recently that's worth digging into. To me, the, one of the most novel implementations of DAOs that I've seen are actually the, the, the funds, like the, the, the venture funds structured as DAOs. Um, you know, so what comes to mind here is the LAO. I don't even know what the LAO stands for. Uh, probably a legal autonomous organization or something. Um, but, you know, they've gotten into some really amazing um, deals in the DeFi and kind of gaming uh, Web3 gaming space, and it's really owned by its members. Its members have contributed nearly 15,000 ETH to invest in blockchain projects. <laughs> and so like being able to run a decentralized venture fund is super cool. And uh, more recently, Flamingo DAO, which I wish I participated in. I've always loved, the, loved that team. You know, I think they're really smart and are doing things in a, in a really legally intelligent way. But to see, you know, vehicles like Flamingo DAO acquire things like CryptoPunks and other kind of curated art, um, you know, like Hextow is working on a kind of commission piece for them right now. I think that's super cool. Aside from structurally distinct DAOs like that, I think there are things existing communities can do to slowly become more and more DAO-like in nature. Like just to go back to Friends with Benefits for a second, a couple of us, um, Galaxy Interactive included, are planning on investing directly into the token. And this was the first time, because they take DAO mechanics so seriously, I've ever seen the possibility of a private sale be put up to a DAO vote <laughs> with full huh. debate, including kind of terms, et cetera. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, you know, I know Whale Shark is also implementing a lot of DAO mechanics and long-term is, is really thoughtful about how he plans to essentially re return a lot of the value of the whale vault, which is probably one of the best art collections in the world at this point, NFT art collections in the world, back to its token holders. You know, I think that'll be really interesting because even if he wanted to, and I know he does, there are security law issues with how you do that. 
in a legally compliant way. So, you know, I think it's going to be this tension between, I think a lot of people think DAOs are really cool um, and they strike a chord with the type of world we want to live in, but it's in direct tension with a lot of somewhat archaic consumer protection rules, mainly from the SEC that are meant to look out for the, the poor little guy who, who thinks he's participating in something really cool and essentially just gets scammed out of his money. Yeah, I guess as we wrap up here, Richard, I would love to know whether you have any other questions about social tokens or DAOs or NFTs that you know you would like to ask other experts in the industry. So one of the things I'm looking out for is how the traditional fine art industry makes its play into NFTs. One of the structural issues is a lot of the existing platforms like Nifty and others have hosted NFTs and digital art that you know the fine art community does not view as art, which you can view as you know somewhat uh, elitist or <laughs> uh, whatever you, you want to call it. But I also totally understand where they're coming from. Because in the physical world, you know, when you think about the galleries and the, the kind of curation mechanisms that traditional artists go through to make sure that, you know, they're surrounded by the, the right types of peers, you know, we haven't really seen that yet in NFT space. And so I, I think there are going to be um, opportunities in that regard, the kind of more curated introductions to NFT space from really established traditional artists. Uh, that are pretty exciting to me. And I think we're in the super early stages of blockchain gaming as well. Like I said, one of the things that interests me the most are AAA game developers figuring out how to turn portions of their UGC worlds into virtual real estate that players can own. I think that's going to be a big trend for some of the more forward-thinking developers, um, given how many people in the gaming industry are still sleeping on this. So Really, I guess like my question or more, more my ask is um, for interesting kind of founders and other projects who are working at this intersection of Web3 and, and gaming and the creator economy more broadly uh, to, to reach out with kind of interesting ideas. And I'm also looking to meet uh, interesting folks just from a potential hiring standpoint. Um, you know, I, someone with a good mix of kind of a creative and technical background, like something like a creative coding background would be amazing, which if you think about it is really non-standard from a traditional um, investment team standpoint. But I think <laughs> the skills that you're going to need to succeed um, in investing in this ecosystem going forward are very different from the types of skills that you get as a three-year analyst at Goldman Sachs, right? So, so yeah, really, really looking forward to meeting non-conventional candidates, uh, potentially interested in a VC role in this space as well. Yeah, I guess on on that um, creative coder role, what specifically about that type of profile, whether it be mindset or technical skill set, that would be complementary to your existing team? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good question. Like my my most recent piece that I wrote was about how I think we're in the midst of a massive unlock uh, and TAM expansion driven by the fact that what have traditionally been consumption and entertainment types of industries like gaming, music, you know, even like concerts, like, you know, basically cultural experiences that you used to like buy a ticket to and go to once um, are, are now actually becoming investable for the first time. And as I think about 
some of our most successful investments in things like, you know, StockX and um, just really things at the forefront of, of consumer generally. It's driven by the fact that for the first time, consumer consumers actually have a financial edge. Um, and I'm not talking about stuff like GameStop here. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm talking more um, things like NFTs and cultural assets that have a lot of very real value um, and can be instantiated in investment form for the first time. And so as I think about like the skills you need as a venture investor in this space, it's people who really understand things like some of the community dynamics we've talked about here, uh, people who really understand how marketing and social works, and, and also people who um, have a really deep appreciation um, and willingness to learn on both the creative dimensions as well as the technical ability to make their vision reality. Like I'll give you a concrete example. One of my, um, one of the, one of the founders I respect the most in the space right now is Eric Snowfro, um, creator of Artblock, uh, which is my personal favorite NFT platform in the generative art space. And he taught himself creative coding <laughs> in the course of a year and built Artblock from scratch. I mean, um. the guy has a day job as uh, in a in a construction company, <laughs> and uh, you know, like that is the type of um, you know can do attitude uh, uh, of like combining let's say concrete skill set in terms of creative coding, but also like an artistic vision, right, to unlock the true potential of this form and what is is possible using NFTs that is not just a digital image of like a physical oil canvas, but actually something that really leverages the properties of the medium to create a community and user experience um, that embeds like really interesting metagame dynamics, right? And, and I think has the potential to scale significantly from here. To use the, the, the old phrase, you gotta skate to where the puck is going, right? And I, I, I don't think being able to model DCF is going to be as relevant to figuring out the next billion dollar venture consumer opportunity um, as it might be for like a a growth equity investor, for example. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that opportunity with our audience. If there's anyone out there who might fit this role or you know someone who does, I will be dropping Richard's contact details in the show notes. So do make sure to reach out to him and the Galaxy Interactive team. With that said, Richard, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. These are a lot of fresh topics that I'm sure our listeners have not been thinking about. So super appreciate your insights there and hope to bring you back on the show again very soon. Thanks, Leslie. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.